0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Justin DeLeon. Justin is a Baha'i and first-generation Filipino-American. He is a documentary filmmaker who is devoted to the field of international development. He is currently a doctoral student at the University of Delaware. I started the interview by asking Justin where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, in a little suburb called Centerville in the middle of Ohio, so a predominantly Caucasian environment. Um, I'm Filipino-American. Out of my grade school and my high school experience, I think there might have been one, maybe I, I, maybe two other Asian-Americans at the whole school, predominantly white neighborhood and, and school. It was really quiet. It was a, a really wonderful place where we could leave our doors unlocked. It was safe. We'd ride our bikes all day and all night in the summer, and it's a good place to to grow up, I think, especially compared to some of the places that I live in now and uh, have traveled to. I'd say. Mm.
0: And what was religious life like growing up?
1: My parents are—we're uh, all Filipino, and my parents are are Catholic. And of course, the Filipinos are staunchly Catholic. I think it's it's upwards ninety percent in the Philippines. And I found that my religious experience my interactions with, with Catholic faith I, I went to 12 years of Catholic schools and I found that my parents the relationship with, the, with their religion was very I would say uh, ritualistic or tradition based so we didn't go regularly to church but we did made sure that we went to Easter and Christmas very much part of the Filipino identity is, is which, church, which church do you belong to so oftentimes, even now, when I, when I meet Filipinos in the area that I live in now, which is Delaware, they often ask, well, what church do you belong to, what church uh, do you go to? And so I really struggled with this idea of knowing that I have this spirituality that was within me, that was almost just explored individually, compared and contrasted to this very ritualistic experience that I would have going to church. I started seeing these inconsistencies that really made me think twice about what it meant to be a Catholic, the idea of maybe showing up the church a few minutes late and people not moving down the pew to sit down, or, as, as you know, all the, a lot of the, the Catholic Church's struggles with priests and children, and um, even the neighborhood in the area that I lived in had some of those challenges. So I started seeing a lot of these inconsistencies, and I think this was around the time Uh, Around when I was leaving Ohio, my end of my my high school years, was when I said, okay, I can understand the wonderful qualities that my Catholic education gave me, which has to deal with responsibility to to other people and living a good life. And sort of I took those and I translated them into a spirituality that I didn't exactly know how to articulate fully, but I knew was there. I think the, the idea of having this ritualistic experience with God and tradition didn't sit so well with me. I was still very much making sense of that when I left Ohio.
0: Now, what generation American are you?
1: Yeah, my parents are both Filipino, and they were born and raised in the Philippines, and they moved over here when they were about 21, which was about 1971, and uh, I was born in 1980. And they had moved directly to Ohio, uh, Dayton, Ohio, which was very strange because uh, there weren't, as I mentioned to you previously, there was not a lot of diversity in Ohio at the time. My mom, uh, she used to tell me that when they would walk around the grocery stores, little kids would come by and start following them around and looking at them and wanting to touch their hair and, and all this. And so my parents have been here ever since 1971, and uh, my dad has pretty much been with the same job in Ohio since. And there has been this Filipino community that's developed within, o- within Ohio and within Dayton, where we live. I guess that would make me first generation. Yeah I think or, so. yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, myself and my brother. So uh, after high school, I went to a small college called Allegheny College near Pittsburgh and I played soccer there and it was a great place because it really fostered this broad exploration of your interests so I played soccer but at the same time I was involved in community service activities and I studied economics and political science and math and also documentary film and it was a sm- again it was a small environment small enough where you could pretty much do whatever you really desire to do. And if you had an idea or wanted to implement some type of program, it wasn't that difficult or unfeasible to do so. And so I think that really helped me set the ground for trying to explore. I think one of the really nice things that my mom and my dad really instilled in me as growing up was this idea that you should be involved in baseball, soccer, basketball, and you should be able to play multiple instruments and musical instruments. And so we did a lot of things, and I think it wasn't until I started getting a little bit older that I said, okay, well, I know that I'm really good at a few of these, and so I'll stick with them. But as I was coming to more of adulthood in my college days, that small nurturing environment, safe nurturing environment, again, let me explore. And I think that's very much related to my my spiritual journey, because it was around the time when I was a junior in college, when I first heard about the Baha'i Faith, and when I first started studying the Baha'i Writings.
0: So tell me about your encounter with the Baha'i Faith. Throughout college, I knew that I wanted
1: to live a life of service of some sort. I was always interested in how does one make other people's lives or their conditions better, and the way that I first looked at this was through political science and also economics. When I was a third year in college, I decided to study abroad in Lancaster England. This was around the time when I had a lot of transitions in my life. It was the first time I started cooking for myself, so I became a vegetarian 13, 14 years ago, and I'm still a vegetarian now. It was also around the time when I was reading a lot of biographies about Mahatma Gandhi, and I was reading uh, Henry David Thoreau, and when I arrived in the UK, I ran into some really nice friends of mine. And um, they were also interested in peace, also interested in how does one contribute to the progress of, of humankind. We started doing all these service projects together. We started having these long conversations together. And we were really very much on the same page when it came to seeing the world as, as one human family, as seeing the necessity for uh, one's profession to be in line with with bettering the situation of others. But the unique difference was that they had this, um, this sort of well of knowledge to, to draw upon, which was um, what I came to find out later at the, the Baha'i Faith. And so at the time, they had invited me to many of these study circles, um, which I now know as the, the Ruhi Institute, and I also know as, as devotional gatherings and, and firesides, And all of those things are basically the—now we see it as kind of this pattern to community life where people come together and share prayers from any denomination, share things of a devotional-like quality, or study the holy writings in a group of of neighbors. To me, this was something very unique because, as I had mentioned to you, I grew up in a very traditional Catholic environment where the priest— pretty much had all the answers, and there wasn't really a two-way dialogue. It was a one-way dialogue, making sure that you toe the line. And so to be in an environment where we are guests in one of the Baha'i's homes, and he was an older Persian gentleman, probably about 50 years old or so, and he was having conversations, and he and other members of the Baha'i community in Lancaster who are older, We're having conversations with very young people, whether they're high schoolers or even myself, I was in college. And the way that respect was granted to everyone speaking about spiritual matters, regardless of their age, was really something that was eye-opening and unique for me. And I think it was definitely an environment that I wanted to be around, which is this spiritual um, investigation with other people where no one was telling me what the right answer was or what I need to do. Rather, it was, let's collectively explore these things. And I saw a kindness and a gentleness about the investigation of, of religion that I had never seen before. And so it very much resonated with me. And it was one of these things where I already knew what I wanted to do. Basically, I wanted to work in international peace and development, the field of international peace and development. So I really wasn't looking for a religion at all. Matter of fact, I had already been fed up with with religion and seeing all the inconsistencies and hypocrisies growing up in a Catholic environment throughout high school. And I didn't want anything to do with religion. I knew that I carried with me the spirituality. And I was reading a lot of Thoreau and Gandhi at the time. And That's really all I needed. Into that collection of books that I had when I was really making these efforts to explore, I also had The Hidden Words, which is a compilation of Baha'i prayers. And I also had a a Baha'i prayer book that my my friend gave to me. What was really interesting was, um, I've seen a lot of people when they interact for the first time with the Baha'i faith, sometimes they'll have so many questions that it's almost like they're a sponge, Uh, Some of my friends, they'll be so inquisitive about the Baha'i faith, and I'll give them one or two books, and within a week they come back and say, what else can I read? I need to know more. I need to know more. For me, it wasn't so much like that. When I heard about the message of Baha'u'llah, it made complete sense. The idea that all religions are one, that essentially each religion is almost like a a chapter in a book that's ever-revealing. Or the idea that God is one, that everyone who's worshiping God, in what form they may they may see, is ultimately worshiping the same God, and certainly the idea that all mankind is one, very much resonated with me. So when I heard about these messages, these messi- this message that Baha'u'llah sent, uh, it wasn't very difficult for me to accept. I accepted it pretty straight away, and I think that was some of the the unique way that I came to the faith because um, I accepted Baha'u'llah's message and his station very, very soon, very quickly after. I think for me, the challenge was trying to understand how the laws of Baha'u'llah can affect one's life and how to make sense of them and how to live by them. So for me, I didn't actually declare until years later Though the second that I, pretty much soon on after I heard about Baha'u'llah's revelation, I knew that Baha'u'llah was who he said that he was, which is a messenger of God. And so for me, again, it was sort of wrestling with what does it mean to be a Baha'i? Am I, am I ready and am I knowledgeable enough to be a Baha'i? It really dawned on me a, a few years later. I had always said, okay, well, I, 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 I say, I say morning prayers and I, and I say prayers in the evening time and I tell everyone I know about Baha'u'llah and I tell everyone about the example of Abdul Baha, Baha Baha'u'llah's son. And then I realized that I still yet did not call myself a Baha'i. And so I started really having this sort of, uh, crisis and thinking, well, how could this be? And I realized that at the time I would still call myself Christian, a Catholic, and that I was a follower of Jesus, but I knew certainly that I was far from being a perfect Catholic. And so then I said, well, then how could it be that for some reason or another, I feel that I need to be, quote unquote, a perfect Baha'i before I actually tell people and call myself a Baha'i? And it was that investigation and that realization that I'm never going to be perfect that allowed me to say, okay, I'm going to take this first step and I'm going to allow myself to continue working on for the rest of my life, working to live out and to to live by Abdu'l-Baha's example and Baha'u'llah's guidelines. And so soon thereafter, I I accepted the faith.
0: What were your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?
1: My my parents are wonderful, and they're very supportive. And though the Filipino tradition is very staunchly Catholic, uh, they were very open to many of these things. I joke around with my mom a lot because... One of the first times she ever, really verbally said, "Okay, fine, you're a Baha'i, you're a Baha'i," was uh, I was living in in Northern Ireland, and uh, I was working in a uh, one of the post-conflict areas, with a youth club, and I was living in this enclave of about of about 200 people, and at the time, the major violence in Northern Ireland had subsided significantly, but. Still, whatever left of, of violence was targeted towards this small enclave. So while I was working there for about a year, on multiple occasions I had, we had bricks thrown at us. We had to evacuate the house once or twice because of bomb threats. One of the students I worked with was, was stabbed and we had glass bottles thrown at us and, and the like. And I remember when I was talking to my mom over the phone and telling her, I didn't tell her all of the details, but I told her about some of the the challenges that some of the youth are facing out here. And she immediately said, Okay, Justin, make sure you tell everyone you're a Baha'i. You're a Baha'i. You're not Protestant. You're not Catholic. You're a Baha'i. And I said, Okay, Mom, you said it. No turning back. Uh, And I joke around with her about that now. But she's very close to the faith. I haven't lived in Ohio since I became a Baha'i, so I haven't been able to invite them to devotional gatherings haven't been able to talk a lot about the Baha'i faith with them, but they've seen a transformation in me, I would say, I would hope, uh, at least they say, over the last 10 years, what, last 16 years that I left Ohio, my focus in being of service to other people has certainly fine-tuned itself and has refined itself. And... I know that they know it's because, very much because of the influence of the Baha'i faith on me. So they're very, very close to the faith. One time, my mom actually told me this really lovely story. She, My mom owned a a copy center, much like a Kinko's in Ohio. And uh, she owned it for about 25 years, and uh, she had all these friends that would come in. And on one occasion, she was telling me a story that... She was really busy, and she was taking care of a bunch of people, and there was this young man uh, waiting very patiently. And he smiled at her, and she said, Oh, uh, I'll be with you in just a moment. And he very patiently said, Oh, no problem. I'm in no rush. And after the rush subsided, my mom said, You're so nice and so friendly. Are you a Baha'i? And it was funny, because she said that the gentleman kind of blushed, and he said, "Oh no, but I have Baha'i friends, and that's a very much a compliment." And he actually knew what the Baha'i faith was. And so then they got along and got into a long conversation. And then my mom was telling him how her, his son, her, her son, is is a Baha'i and what what I was doing. And when I heard that story that my mom told me, it was a beautiful confirmation, a beautiful confirmation that everyone wants acceptance, of course, from their parents, but also in their spiritual path it's nice to know that those who care about you are also aware and accepting and and encouraging of that path as well. So after college I uh, set my targets on trying to work in an international development capacity and so I looked at Geneva, Switzerland essentially as the place that I wanted to go and uh, I started off with uh, an internship in London for the better I got a little derailed. I realized that a lot of the international organizations that I wanted to work with required a lot of experience, which I didn't quite have yet. And so I immediately started seeking out these smaller, quote-unquote, opportunities with organizations that weren't really big. It took me to the north part of England for a while to reconnect with some of the Baha'i friends there, and then I moved to Northern Ireland, and I worked with youth in the post-conflict area. Immediately after that, I went out to India, and I worked with, with a, a non-profit that, that was housing and educating street children. In New Delhi, I was able to help coach a street kids soccer league, which was fantastic because I really wanted to understand more about poverty and what poverty looked like. And it was nice to do it not as an economist, not as a political scientist, but as a friend, a friend of these youth, and I would go and play soccer with them, and we would learn together It was a really great experience. Soon after that, I came back and I got involved a lot with the Rotary International, some great fellowships that they have. And I I started doing a master's degree in Florida, and that sent me out to the Philippines, where I did some research for about a year. And I I worked in um, the largest slum in the Philippines doing some film work, but then also looking at some of the causes of, of conflict in the Filipino context then I, with Rotary International, I was a Rotary Peace Fellow, which took me out to Thailand for some time and did some work in, in Cambodia and Nepal and uh, on the, the, the border of Burma and, and Thailand. And then that really took me up till about the time when I moved to Philadelphia in 2000. Actually, no, that took me up right here to where I am now at the University of Delaware, uh, where I'm, I'm doing a Ph.D., and uh, all along the way, I'd say spattered about, there are some film trips, some uh, documentary film projects, which, which took me out to, to Kenya and Tanzania. Two summers ago, I was in Honduras, and then just this last summer, I was in Uganda, doing different projects that have to do with research, doing different projects that have to do with documentary film. So now, I, I currently uh, locate myself in Newark, Delaware.
0: I'm curious what the work was that you were doing with the youth in Northern Ireland.
1: When I was in Northern Ireland, I worked at this youth center. And one of the things I really realized was all these people were well-intended, but there was also a lot of money going into Northern Ireland. And just like many post-conflict environments, there's a lot of people that would tend to gravitate to these community-building activities, because of opportunity. And this was my first experience outside uh, in the real world, quote-unquote, looking at development. And what I realized was that just because people were working for peace didn't necessarily mean that they were at peace. And there's a concept that's introduced in the the Ruhi book, Book 5, which is Releasing the Powers of the Junior Youth, which talks about this dual transformation of society, that there has to be this this structural or or material transformation that has to work in concert with an inner spiritual aspect, transformative aspect. And I really started understanding this a little bit more when I had really challenging interactions with Peace professionals, if you want to call them that, in in Northern Ireland, where I found that what they were working for wasn't always in line with their inner feelings or who they were and their character. And so, what I ended up starting to do was I really very much just gravitated towards being with these young people. I started out doing a lot of different broad things, working for the city, et cetera, et cetera, and I really started just honing in on just working with the young people because. I felt that they were the most genuine in their interactions when it comes to really working for peace and trying to build a, a community of understanding. I remember on multiple occasions dignitaries would come to, to the youth center and all of the people that would work at the center would just rush to try to be with, uh, in one instance it was Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland. And the youth would just be sitting in the back, no one tending to them and no one even paying attention. So I started working with the youth and I created this this program where we would have this discussion group and we would just meet twice a week and we would talk about things that had to do with their lives, whether it actually had to do directly with peace and reconciliation or just other teenage angst type stuff. And we were able to build this really nice bond and this really nice relationship with uh, maybe 20 or so youth there. And that was really meaningful to me. I realized that I don't, and I didn't necessarily want to be part of these large NGOs, these large international organizations, but rather, I wanted to work with young people. I wanted to work with people that would still believe that change can happen. I think a lot of this has to do with my, my upbringing in, in Ohio. It's uh, sort of a a place of modest means in Ohio, and even even probably my parents' upbringing. My parents grew up in the Philippines in villages that had dirt roads. And, and so this idea of working for social change not necessarily having to take place in these large organizations and these prestigious organizations, but rather internally this spiritual transformation very much resonated with me. And again, like I had mentioned, this was also the time where I, I just became a Baha'i and the emphasis on spiritual transformation, individual spiritual transformation. The Baha'i faith was able to give me a direction to investigate. It was very meaningful at the time and very much influenced who and how and what I've been doing ever since.
0: So tell us about the conflict in the Philippines and what were you documenting?
1: Yeah, I guess if you would say my academic inquiry is really, or, or just the investigations that I wanted to, that I've started undertaking, has really evolved from my first understandings of trying to understand what are the, at the root causes of conflict. When I was in the Philippines, I was essentially looking at the economic factors and the political factors and how they combined to create this environment where it was rife for mistrust and conflict. But the evolution of how I started thinking and understanding about conflict really started changing significantly. And the work that I do now is also based around conflict and security and insecurity, but it's dramatically different from my first explorations. I would say part of that, I remember one of my first experiences at the Baha'i Faith that really just dropped my jaw. And this was when I first heard that in the Baha'i faith, it's understood that one of the most grievous of sins is backbiting. And I said, backbiting? You mean talking bad about people? Uh, as Baha'is were told that it extinguishes the light of the soul and that backbiting is really at the, co- at, at, at the center of all disunity, discord, and, and conflict. And I remember when I first heard this and I said, wait a second. I have been traveling all around the world trying to turn over every rock to figure out what the causes of conflict are. And Baha'u'llah says that it actually is talking bad about someone when they're not in the room. Something that at a sort of a a base, visceral way actually kind of sometimes even feels like it gratifies you. Something that you can get together with your friends and just talk about people is actually the root cause of all conflict. And so what I really started thinking about that and, and internalizing that I started realizing that if I'm looking for external factors, which are at the cause of conflict, certainly there's going to be some things that would, that would contribute. Certainly there needs to be some structural elements that could contribute, but that can't be it. So I started looking at the Philippines, just trying to explain what happened, and I got a sense of what that explanation was, but I didn't get an understanding of what that was. And so since then, I've I've looked at conflict in in northern Uganda. And my work now, as 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 I'm working on my dissertation at the current moment, is looking at the inseparability of security from insecurity. And so really what I'm asking and what I'm looking at is when you look at the conventional understanding in political science of security, it generally has to do with the state, it has to do with military. But that's not really how insecurity is experienced. And so I'm looking at how insecurity is experienced through the lives of women in marginalized political communities, or marginalized communities. And the reason why I'm taking this approach, I'm taking yeah. a very much a, an ethnographic approach, which is more like a sociology, where you go and you try to unravel how people are making sense of things in their lives. And so that's how, and that's how my approach has evolved. And so now I'm looking at how people are making meaning out of state security, out of insecurity, how people are understanding how in one stroke the state can protect and on another stroke it actually can be the purveyor of insecurity. And I'm really trying to understand how people are making meaning within their lives rather than these structural elements, um, these structural elements which would lead to an environment where conflict is, is possible. Because, I mean, even some of the, the really exciting stuff that's been coming out of the Baha'i community worldwide, where you have these amazing junior youth programs, these programs with youth and community building in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo or in places like Burma or in places like Cambodia, where you have all of these structural elements of that that would lead a lot of political scientists to say, okay, this area is rife for conflict. There's a structural element which could lead to conflict. But yet the Baha'i community has shown that community building based on internal transformation and spiritual transformation can thrive anywhere, and not only thrive everywhere or anywhere, but these communities in the DRC and Cambodia and in Burma are very much exemplary in, in how they're weaving together these, uh, these communities based on spirituality. So I think my academic trajectory very much mimics and influenced is influenced by how much I'm I'm understanding Baha'u'llah's revelation, how much I'm understanding the community voting process within within the Baha'i context, and so I, I expect it to continue to evolve. But maybe not for the next two years when I when I uh, finish up my dissertation. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it's staying fixed for just a little bit.
0: Yeah. So is any institution or State taking notice of the Baha'i community building activities in these countries that you refer to, like Burma and Thailand.
1: I know that there are some efforts. One of the projects that I was involved in with uh, a scholar named Erin Murphy Graham out of University of California Berkeley. She was working with uh, this Sat program in Honduras, and essentially it is a model from this Fundiac Baha'i inspired organization out of Colombia where they look to establish rural education centers and really take a a very much a different epistemological stance at at where knowledge is coming from. And so in Honduras, they've actually teamed up, there's a organization there that they've, a Baha'i inspired organization that's teamed up with the Ministry of Education to offer this rural education program that is High inspired. I mean, one of the interesting things that I've been doing out here is uh, at the community that I, that I live in, which is, which is Newark, Delaware, my friend and I, a close friend and I, uh, we started this nonprofit about a year and a half ago. It's a bike uh, nonprofit where people can donate bikes and people can sell them. People, people can purchase bikes and they can repair their bikes. But one of the really interesting things is that uh, we really work on being a community organization. And so a lot of our activities are well beyond just the bike. And so we do things like we have an open mic, we have an art gallery, uh, we have a free bike program for people with social services, we have a youth program that very much mimics some of the elements of the the junior youth group of uh, spiritual empowerment. But one of the really interesting learnings and experiences that we've had is that since my friend and I started it, we very much wanted the Baha'i convictions to be at the heart of what we're doing. It's not a Baha'i inspired organization, but we have taken specific tools from the Baha'i community model and used them in our nonprofit, which has allowed it to be really successful. So we read writings directly from from the Baha'i faith when it comes to consultation. Uh, We have a board a working board and we brought in these documents of consultation which are essentially that from differing points of view the spark of truth can come and that uh, everyone needs to be able to share their perspective free and unfettered and once they put it out there that uh, you remove emotion from from the conversation and you search out truth and once the group comes to a, a unified decision that the unity of the group in that decision is more important than an individual holding on to what they believe is the right uh, way of action. And so we explicitly talked about the Baha'i model of consultation. We also talked about this model of action-reflection consultation, as a means that many of the Baha'i communities are using to generate knowledge from community activities. So we used that in, the, in this nonprofit. And we also decided to also take the, the Baha'i model of, of elections, where individuals are now not permitted to uh, campaign, where we emphasize that this is a service position. And I think what's really nice about this is that it has a sometimes an often unthought about consequence, which is if everyone knows that they have to vote in a year and there's no campaigning and no one's gonna say that, to vote for me, it forces all of the community members, much like the bi-community members, to get to know other community members so when the time comes, they can say, hmm, who, who can best advance the interests of the community best, whether it's the Baha'i community or this nonprofit. And so it's kind of like this mechanism to uh, encourage people to engage in community building and engage other people in getting to know their character. So there has been this really, really fantastic experiment. Currently, I'm, I'm moving away from the decision making process of this nonprofit, but it's grown significantly. I've grown significantly enough to be recognized by the city and to be in collaboration now with the university. And what's nice is that even in the bylaws and even in the working documents, there are Baha'i principles that are really foundational. And one of the, the fantastic pieces of advice that I that I picked up from um, dear friend Layli Miller with the Taqari Justice Center, she once told me when I was in Orlando for the Social and Economic Development Conference, she had mentioned that in their organization, they very clearly say these are Baha'i principles. And she told me, she encouraged me to think about it as if it were a desire not to plagiarize. For instance, if, if this author is you know, saying this great theory, I wouldn't go in front of people and say, oh, okay, well, this author believes that symbolic politics is the, the, the root cause of ethnic conflict without mentioning who that author was. And in the same, if I'm talking about consultation, if I'm talking about dual transformation, just so that I don't want to plagiarize, it's much easier to say, yes, this is from the Baha'i faith. This is what Abdu'l-Baha said. This is what Baha'u'llah said, and see it more of as a matter of who's saying what and making sure that one's not plagiarizing. And so that little shift of mentality, however small it it is, really was quite liberating to be able to say, okay, I'm not teaching explicitly about the Baha'i faith but I am using principles of Baha'i faith and I need to be honest about it. And I would say it and then we would get on with it and we would do it. And what's been so unique about that is that people within our nonprofit environment, our community have seen the benefits and seen the value of consultation, of the electoral process, of this action reflection consultation model all taken from the Baha'i context. So now what's really beautiful is that I sit back and listen to how the community deals with new activities and challenges and they're bringing up these ideas of action, reflection, consultation of the board being a service position, of our election process. And I think that just really very much highlighted and spoke to the potency of of the guidance of Baha'u'llah's message.
0: So you said you made some documentary films? Yeah. Can you tell me about those? Yeah.
1: There's this really beautiful documentary film that I've been part of for the last three and a half, four years. It's called Give to Live, live givetolivethemovie.com. And it started out with four or five, about four Baha'is that we were all living in Philadelphia at the time. And I had gotten this idea after doing all this traveling, I said to myself, how can one really understand what's going on in this development field? I had spent years living and working abroad and i had so many questions of how does one go about making change what is the most effective effective way to make change where does money go to and i just started thinking about what would my my mom who, who is a small business owner or what would my dad who's an engineer how would they start trying to unravel this mess of development and so i said okay well let's make a film about this and i turned to my really my, my trusted friends who are filmmakers it just so happened that they were also Baha'is. And so we put together this documentary film that we've been working on for about four years, exploring development efforts internationally. And so we filmed a few years ago in Kenya and Tanzania. And basically what we did was we found individuals who are much smarter than than, than myself, much more experienced than, than anyone on our team, and we asked them these questions. We asked people questions of, what are the most effective ways to try to assist in someone else's life? How could it be that after decades of development efforts, there really is no recognizable change in the conditions of so many people's lives throughout the, throughout the globe? And of course, we also wanted to figure out how we could integrate some of the ways that we saw the world, which were Baha'i-inspired. And so we were able to introduce ideas of dual transformation of society, this idea that development is more than just material, but it's also spiritual, there is this internal and individual aspect, individual transformation aspect to progress and progressing human uh, humanity forward. And so we've been working really hard on this, although uh, it's been a, a very fruitful experience because many of the filmmakers on the team have really continued their careers in other places. So one of our team members is now in New Orleans. Two others are, are, one's in New York and another one is going to school in New York. And so we are finishing all editing this summer. And then we hope to roll out the project by the end of the year. And it's been, confirmations were, were coming left and right. And they still are. We've had so many people touch it and so many people contribute to it. We're really excited. Hopefully, by the end of this year, when we when we start rolling it out, that it's a it's a message that's really needed. The hope of our film is to really kind of create an environment where people can start exploring these ideas of development in a more meaningful way, rather than just looking at the bottom line materially or looking at the bottom line uh, economically. So we bring in a lot of a lot of influences from the Bahá'í Faith. We also bring in a lot of positive psychology and also a lot of feminist critique. So it's a, it's a very meaningful endeavor, and hopefully hopefully, sometime soon we can share it with, with the rest of the world.
0: Justin, what's your plan after you get your Ph.D.?
1: Hopefully I finish up in the next two years, and I'd love to teach. I'd love to teach in a, in a, a liberal arts environment, a small liberal arts environment. One of the lessons that I'm continuing to learn that's been very much strengthened by my experience with the Baha'i Faith as well as um, the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity. They have this great program as well, which is uh, a Baha'i program that really tries to help people start integrating different aspects of their lives into a coherent framework. And what I mean by this and how it's affected me is essentially I've always had a lot of interests and I've never been able to do just one thing. And for the longest time, a lot of my academic advisors would tell me that I have to choose. When I first started here at the University of Delaware, I was told that I need to choose to ask myself whether or not I am an activist and documentary filmmaker or if I'm an academic. And after further investigation and, and, and going through these programs of the Institute of uh, Studies and Global Prosperity and, and reading the writings, I really realized that there's no difference between thinking and doing. And so if I'm learning about community building, it's best that I'm actually partaking in community building. And so I really hope to be in an environment where the documentary films that I'm making, the, the youth groups that I'm working with, I, I'm a feminist international relations scholar, I can do political psychology work, all of these disparate interests can be all wrapped together in a coherent framework of understanding How is it that we perceive the world? And how is it can we synthesize and sort of repackage some of those learnings which we've had to other people so that they can uh, supplement their understanding of the world better? That's actually how I very much view what documentary film does, what photography does, and even what academic work is. It's a blank canvas where you can synthesize how you're seeing the world in a way that can resonate with other people to allow them to experience things differently, to allow them to see things differently. And I know that a lot of the work that I do is is really not my own, that it's my interpretation of the Baha'i faith and and how I see uh, the House of Justice leading the Baha'i community forward. So a lot of my work uh, very much pulls from those inspirations. I only know of one other political scientist that does it, is I use ethnographic documentary film as a method Political science is very slow moving at times to adopt new ways and to even accept new ways of, of understanding what knowledge is. And so really, I've been working over the last few years to to show that documentary film can be a great supplement to the written text in a way, in a medium that is much more visceral, that is much more sensual, that is much more evoking and provoking of people to make people act and and want to take ownership of a certain issue and so that's really my task in the next few years is to how to integrate documentary film into this, this project of political science and social inquiry I think if I can do that, which I'm planning on doing that in the next few years with my dissertation, my hope is that I can be in a really small environment where I can again refocus my energies on working with young people, working with people that have that are still open to imagining possibilities and still open to imagining new ways of being. And so I very much would love to be in an environment where teaching is an emphasis rather than research, where I can include young people in some of these documentary research projects, where we can talk about equality as men and women, and spiritual transformation within the context of human rights. Um, which isn't always the case in these larger institutions. So hopefully, I would say within three or four years, I can continue teaching and, and actually be full-time teaching rather than doing my own research in a Ph.D. environment.
0: Well, Justin, thank you so much for sharing your life with us and your work. It sounds wonderful.
1: Well, I'm, I'm very humbled. I know that uh, you've been able to interview some wonderful people, so I, I'm very uh, very humbled to to be able to speak to you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Justin DeLeon, a Baha'i documentary film producer and scholar in the area of international development. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: My cup was brimming over With blood of petty pains It soon fell and emptied out Romance and recognition lost their clout And left a space for love to end the drought and So he went to travel And be refilled. As planes rise, cares descend. From squatting in the dwelling of the friend, open wounds of lifetime start to mend. Trials come, the powers leave I crawl into indulgence for reprieve I wonder if my faith Slipping turns to midnight binge. Falls and gets up, so much realizes pounding at my door As mist falls, mirages fade These days I like to feel a bit afraid It's shown the way to every leap I've
3: of his chamber, the verses revealed by God. The scattering angels of the Almighty shall scatter abroad the fragrance of the words uttered by his mouth shall cause the heart of every righteous man to throb. And shall cause the heart of every righteous man to throb. In torn, the verses of God that have been received by thee, as in torn by them who have drawn nigh unto him. the virtue of the grace vouchsafed unto him must need sooner or later exercise its influence upon his soul in tomb, the verses of God that have been received by E